Welcome to the Clinical Research Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Wolke. In this podcast, we bridge conversations between industry, thought leaders, and patients. Utilizing a unique perspective, integrating years of coaching with Tony Robbins, coupled with scientific and industry experience. We have vulnerable and real conversations with the goal of impacting the industry in meaningful ways. Today on the podcast, we have Kelsey Brown. Kelsey is the Director of Medical Writing Solutions at TransPerfect. TransPerfect is a global company with over 100 offices and 7,000 employees. They help clients in the legal, healthcare, and manufacturing industry create transformational impact through their language, technology, and business consulting solutions. In her role at TransPerfect, Kelsey is responsible for overseeing the entire medical writing department, including implementation of end-to-end medical writing solutions of complex scientific publications and clinical regulatory documents, as well as patient-facing materials. Today on the podcast, we talk about health literacy, numeracy, and the importance of considering the audience you're writing for. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Kelsey. We are thrilled to have you here. Can you tell me, I know we've been talking a bit about medical writing and this trend for plain language. What exactly is plain language? Great. And thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So great question. So I guess when we're thinking about plain language, I kind of want to rewind us a little bit to health literacy, because I think that kind of defines what we're doing in terms of plain language. So um, health literacy is something that um, is near and dear to my heart. So um, it's essentially, the, if you define it, it's essentially the degree at which, you know, any sort of individual, whether that be a patient, you know, members of the public, a caregiver, is reading a passage of information, um, and it's their ability to understand that text and be able to produce an action upon that. So um, when we're thinking about health literacy, you know, the average person's is about a 12-year-old's reading level. So if you're looking at, let's say, the U.S. healthcare system, that might be a sixth to eighth grade reader's level, um, which a lot of people are surprised at just because I think we assume that it might be much higher. But um, I think just in general, it's um, that tends to be the average uh, based off of our, our world landscape that we're looking at the moment. Um, and, you know, I think with that and paying attention to health literacy, the reason why we want to focus on plain language is so that we can meet everyone at, at their literacy level. So meeting at that average health literacy level so that we can really reach as many people in the audience as possible. Um, and, you know, they found that um, people with lower health literacy tend to have poor health outcomes. So I think even more importantly, we should really make sure that we're reaching as many audiences as possible so that they can really take that health information uh, and work with it and be able to decide on their future in healthcare and what decisions they want to make around their healthcare. Um, so I guess going back to the definition of plain language there. So plain language is communicating to members of um, the public and members of that target audience um, so that they can understand uh, for the very first time that they read that passage of text, what that means. So um, when, you know, when we think about plain language, we want to make sure that content is clear, it's concise, you know, it's straight to the point. Um, and we're also, we're not dub- dumbing down the information. I think we want to make it more simple, but the goal isn't to, you know, talk down to the reader. Um, it's making sure that we're creating content um, that's accessible um, and, you know, that anyone can read as soon as they, you know, and understand as soon as they read it. 
I once, uh, my husband was in the hospital and there was like a triage area and there was a woman next to us with her husband and he was being diagnosed with cancer and the doctors came in and were giving her things to read and talking to her. And I overheard her on the phone and she had no idea what was really going on with him. Uh, what she had said is, well, they say he's got cancer and I hear that cancer is bad. So I don't know that we're going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of pulled her aside and I was like, hey, can, like, I'm sorry to have overheard, but you might want to get some more information um, because she just went based on a, you know, a 30 year old belief, like cancer's bad. If someone has cancer, they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's this, this drive towards health literacy and really making sure that people understand their health, especially at the rate in which our industry is, is changing is even more important now than ever. Yeah. Now, Kelsey, you talked about having it clear and concise and something that someone can understand. So if someone's to create, for example, a, a, a document, uh, how do we know what this 12 year old six to eighth grade level is? Yeah. And great question. So we have health literacy and numeracy principles that enable us to, to meet um, that 12 year old's reading level. Um, we also have readability metrics that can at least give you sort of a gauge about one, you know, which reading level you're able to achieve. So um, in terms of readability metrics, we have things like flush reading ease, the FRE score, or flush Kincaid grade level, FKGL. Um, each of those have certain thresholds that they recommend um, in terms of, you know, accessing the most members of the public as possible. So the flush reading ease, for example, if you score 70% or higher on that, it means that likely the, the text that you've created um, is accessible to more members of the public in that way or about a 12-year-old's reading level. Um, versus the flesh Kincaid grade level, um, you want to target about a sixth to eighth grade reading level like we discussed. So, you know, that's that's one way to look at it. Um, I will say readability, you know, formula, they have limitations. So those usually are based around things like, uh, you know, number of words in a sentence, syllables mm-hmm. in a word, things like that. So they're not really going to be looking at context or, you know, are terms um, familiar to the audience? You know, is is the flow of the text, does that make any sense? So that's where things like health literacy and numeracy principles come in to really back that up and provide a bigger picture about readability. I heard the other day from someone who was participating in a clinical trial, and they said they were going through the informed consent process. They said there was a 28-page informed consent document (laughs) that was like a wall of text. And this is someone that works in the industry who was participating in a trial. And he said, I just went through and signed and initialed wherever they told me to. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and that's why I think this is more important than ever is so, so people aren't just, I don't know, my eyes are glazing over, where do I sign? So how do we get away from that 28-page informed consent document that isn't getting read? Because the intention, I think, was to was good to, hey, let me give them all the information. But there comes that point where I think we've all experienced it, your eyes kind of glaze over and you're like, it's just too much. <laughs> so how do we overcome that? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of showing where we're failing our patients is that we're creating this sort of blockade for them to participate in science, participate in research, you know, being able to um, access new treatments and things like that, just because, you know, we create these documentation, these ICFs in that case that just are not digestible, they're not easily understood. Um, and yeah, and then you also kind of see like the case that you brought up with um, the person that you saw where their you know, significant other had you know, cancer and they were unfamiliar with the options available to them. And, you know, a lot of that is just showing, yeah, the amount that we are failing our patients and we're not, you know, being transparent with them about um, the science. So um, we definitely can do things to improve though, I think in that case, and I think integrating those health literacy numeracy principles, you know, engaging with our readability metrics um, is, is where we need to be heading. So, you know, some examples there might include things like um, phrasing. So using words that patients and public audience and audiences understand, or for instance, maybe just user using shorter sentences. So breaking up sentences so that they're not long multi-clause sentences that um, tend to, I, I always call it kind of reader fatigue, where it just gets to be exhausting reading large passages of text, especially when you're looking at informed consent forms, where it's just a lot of legal jargon that may or may not make sense. Um, so really breaking up that content as much as possible. Um, maybe some other ones include things like, uh, you know, white space. So integrating white space throughout your page so that, again, you're breaking up um, that reader fatigue and creating things like bullets and spacing and making it a little bit easier of a flow to read. Um, other areas might be things like uh, act active voice or, you know, versus passive voice. So active voice is essentially, um, it's an emphasis on the subject of the sentence. So whereas like the subject of the sentence is performing the verb's action. So for example, active voice might be the doctor administers treatment versus passive voices, treatment is administered by doctors. So mm -hmm. active voice, it's just a little bit easier to understand in that way. And then, you know, the, the, the action that's being taken. For sure. I think it's, um, and this might be, this might sound wrong, but it's almost like applying some marketing principles to health because if you look at at marketing and and not that this is marketing but you want to be able to understand the person who is signing the document or who is making a decision i saw a metric the other day that something like 28% of of people have some sort of underlying disability so it could be dyslexia it could be you know whatever it might be so again if you're asking them to review this very long lengthy document that's a wall of text, sometimes they just give up and say, okay, forget it. I won't do this. Or just tell me where to sign. And they're really not informed. Um, yeah, exactly. And that kind of, you know, that actually, uh, that reminds me of the biggest rule I always tell people uh, when they're writing lay content is remember your reader. So remember your target audience, you know, put yourself in their shoes and what, what do they want? You know, the goal is to become that trusted partner with your patients to help them navigate the healthcare journey with them. So, like ask yourself what it is that they want out of this content that you're authoring. So, you know, think about um, why are they ac accessing this information? Um, what do they need to do with it? Um, you know, for instance, if it is, you know, a caregiver looking after their cancer patient, they might be looking for information on, uh, you know, available treatments, you know, where can they go to learn about clinical trials, where, where do they learn about standard of care and just author the content based off of that. Um, and of course, respecting them, I think that's a huge thing as well. So if it is like, for example, a caregiver taking care of their loved ones, you know, respect the fact that they are, um, you know, in a really delicate situation, it's scary, 
um, just get, you know, get to the point, but also respect uh, where they're coming from and make sure that you're acknowledging their journey that they're going on. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been there firsthand uh, with my husband and thankfully I had this background and I understood I was able to find a protocol violation in his treatment. Um, I was able to address it with, with his care team and, and whatever else, but it kind of dawned on me, like you really have to, how do we, and this might be a bigger question. How do we increase people's health literacy? And that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think increasing health literacy, it does go back to kind of integrating a lot of the transparency from the very beginning, which is, I think, where our industry is trying to head. So you see um, more and more regulations like EUCTR coming out in the you know, European Union that is integrating more patient centricity and more transparency with the public so that there's more easily accessible information for them to read if they, if need be. And it's more at um, a level that's uh, easy to understand instead of a lot of our technical jargon that we use on the day-to-day basis. So I think really integrating health literacy and an early stage with patient materials is, is the biggest thing. So let's talk about EUCTR for a minute. Yeah, sure. Um, let's talk about what are the implications? What exactly is it? What are the implications and what do people need to do with it? Because you know sometimes there's regulations and I saw some data that suggest um, 2% of, of listings in clinicaltrials.gov actually are following up with results, um, that they're not in lay language. So, but there's no fines yet. So nobody's getting their hands slapped for not doing these things. And obviously that's in the US for clinicaltrials.gov. So I do appreciate, and I, it's kind of exciting to see this trend in in the European nations. Um, but what exactly is the UCTR? What are the implications? And when does it take effect? Yeah. And so the EUCTR 536-2014, so it's the new EU clinical trials regulation that's replacing the EU directive uh, within the European Union. So there are a lot of implications involved around transparency, the new CITES uh, um, platform that's being developed, um, all of those little items, but they all add up to a huge regulation that's changing things within the European Union, and it is having implications around the world. So I do think a lot of countries are looking at the European Union as sort of the the guiding post um, in terms of patient centricity and, and data transparency. So specifically for you know let's let's look at um, plain language summaries of clinical trials since um, that is definitely been it's been a huge game changer within the uh, lay lay adaptation space within health literacy space. So that uh, part of the regulation requires that each sponsor of a clinical trial for which sites are located in the EU will need to produce a summary of results um, that should be written um, for laypersons. So that applies to all phase one through four interventional trials, and they need to be posted within one year of study completion or six months for pediatric trials. So uh, come January actually of 2023 is when this will go into full application. So um, if sponsors haven't you know, already put a plan in place, it's definitely the time to be thinking of it. Uh, just because then trials will definitely become uh, fully in scope in that case. So, Kelsey, for trials starting, I know that this takes effect in, in January 2023, so just a couple months away. Mm-hmm. Um, do they have to give those summaries for trials that are currently in existence or for ones that are beginning at that point forward? 
So a lot of sponsors are doing those for that are currently in existence. They're sort of backtracking um, some, you know, as far back as, you know, 2020, 2018. Um, but that will be come January. It's more of the trials that are actually ongoing and the future trials that'll, that'll be uh, under scope. Great. And then, you know, and this is interesting because I've talked to several patients lately that have participated in clinical trials. And one of the things that they've mentioned pretty much unanimously is, you know, I participated in this clinical trial, but I don't ever know what happened. So unless they see the drug come to market, and of course it's not the number that they might've known it under like, you know, BMS 2419 or whatever the number associated with the study might be, they may not know if the drug ever got approved, if it got pulled. So they don't know, they don't have that sense of completion. Um, so I think it's been a big miss to not have it. So hopefully as these plain language summaries come out, people will be able to access them. And, and that in turn, I think will improve the overall um, understanding of research in the industry and the importance of it and the results of it. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's shocking that, you know, if you look at the data, most patients never get a summary of the results after the study takes place. So right. yeah, it's a huge opportunity that's been missed in the past. And I think the EU is doing, doing a huge thing now, really driving uh, this effort towards increased health literacy and and being transparent with the public about what's going on in our science. So yeah, it's an amazing initiative. Let's talk about plain language protocols. Sure. Yeah. What are What's being done as far as that? Yeah. So, and it's an interesting space. Um, this is also covered within the EU CTR, but it's not particularly required yet. Um, I think we're heading in that direction. Um, there is a requirement for a protocol synopsis that should be written um, within the EU, for instance, and also in the UK for certain registries. Um, but it's not fully required. Um, there, there is a Q&A that accompanies, for instance, within the EU that's come out that has specified certain sections that need to be included in lay language. So it's very recommended and some countries within the EU are taking that as a requirement. So um, we're working with sponsors a lot now to produce these in lay language. Um, they look very different, I would say, than a clinical trial, um, sorry, a, a summary of a clinical trial in lay language. So they're, they tend to be more of a, you know, a two-page document, mm -hmm. um, you know, really short, sweet, to the point, not a lot of graphics involved compared to our uh, clinical trial summary, which is a bit different. So um, we're, we're seeing this more and more. We're seeing this as an uptick, and a lot of sponsors are seeing this now as a required documentation. So um, I would see uh, an increase in these documents. And I do think that they're great because ethics committees are reviewing these. You know, patients that are looking for trials are, are going to be looking at these. So um, another great tool for the public. And that's, you know, I've seen something just kind of looking at the materials that are available for patients looking for trials is, again, I know clinicaltrials.gov is currently under renovation, but if I go there and I've you know gone there and put my patient hat on and said, okay, if I'm a patient and I'm looking for a trial and I go to this site, do I even know where to look? Do I even know what these words mean? Um, and a case in point is we had a close friend who had undergone a bone marrow transplant. He had um, a pretty aggressive leukemia and was trying to find treatment. And he was pretty much at the end of the treatment options. And they said, well, he's going to do a clinical trial. And I said, that's awesome. And I asked them, I said, Hey, do you want me to take a look at it and see if there's anything that you need to know? 
And when I looked at that trial, I saw that he didn't qualify because mm-hmm. of the inclusion exclusion. So I had to go back and tell them, but I mean, maybe the upside of that is they didn't kind of hang their hopes on something that wasn't a viable option. But again, it comes back to the trial was written in such a way that, that they, the average person, um, they were both college educated people, but that they couldn't understand it. And so, you know, I think that that's, you look at it and from the patient's point of view is for somebody where time is, is of the essence, if they're looking for trials that they may not qualify for, they can't discern if they qualify for, they might be eliminating a possibility because they don't understand it. Um, or they might be hanging their hopes on a possibility that they don't qualify for. So, you know, I think that, that I've seen firsthand kind of the, the importance of this. What about, um, you know, you talk some about tips for creating plain language documents, but what would you say if, if someone has to, is this something, I know you talked about the shorter sentences, the white space, clear, concise. Is this something that someone can just say, okay, I'm going to just take this 28 page document and clean up the margins and whatever. Is that something easy to do or are most people outsourcing this or what's your feel for this? Yeah. So it's, it is difficult, especially like if we're looking at an informed consent form where there is a lot of requirement there for there to be legal language involved. So I think that there are certain sections that we might not be able to adapt, whereas others, we are perfectly capable of lay adapting that language so that it's easily understood for members of the public. So I think setting those expectations from the beginning of how much content we can improve and then which you know sections we should probably leave alone to make sure that we're following all regulatory and legal requirements there. Um, and yeah, I think every document is very different. Um, I think certain ones like um, you know lay language clinical trial summaries or patient recruitment information, um, I think a lot of that can definitely be adapted as and when needed. So um, again, integrating those health literacy and numeracy principles throughout. You know, and one of the things that just um, I think is is something to be mindful of is, is most trials are global, that you take something that's written and then you have to translate it into 28 languages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> plain language for all of those 28 different languages. Yeah, it's a huge feat. And I think, again, making those documents accessible to as many people as possible, translations is one of those items that you really need to be thinking about. So having linguists who are familiar with lay language and adapting that content in lay language into those respective languages, as well as the accessibility um, content their, you know aspect of it. So um, making sure that the uh, content can be accessible, whether that be through um, visual aids, through video, through um, any sort of voiceover if needed, you know, looking at the colors on the screen. So making sure that people with varying, you know, reading disabilities or anything, or any sort of disability, they are able to access that information as well. So you mentioned colors on the screen. Do, do the colors impact Oh, yes. Yeah. So like, for instance, if you have like white on a really dark screen, that's not really easy to read, Um, Mm -hmm. as as well as things like font size or, you know, the different types of fonts. So they do recommend things like using 11 to 12 point font or using Arial uh, type Mm -hmm. font or Libri. Those are always great um, just because they're easier to read for more people. So if you have, you know, some sort of visual impairment, um, anything like that, it's, it's fairly helpful, I think, in that regard. Yeah. 
Uh, I know from me looking at my computer for a lot of time in the last few days, my eyes feel like maybe I need 14 point font. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what would you say? I know you gave us some tips. If someone's looking to say, okay, what are the three to five things I need to know about, about plain language? What would they be? Um, I think I'd start always like with what I said earlier. So um, plain language should be writing for your target audience. So you should be writing with that person in mind, um, whether, you know, you know, have even, I even sometimes will write down what my target audience is. So I'll write down what their age might be, what their education level, um, where they live, you know, uh, what kind of, um, you know, condition they might have, things like that just so that I can really keep that person in mind while I'm writing content. Mm-hmm. Um, another great tip is tell a story. So oftentimes this gets missed. So, I, um, you know, they always tell you to have a, a beginning, a middle and an end. So uh, a lot of times it's sometimes gets missed just because uh, it's easy to get carried away with the content, but really paint a story. So, you know, um, is the information presented in an, a logical order? Um, have you presented content where there are topics that are grouped together so that that makes sense? Um, are you having a conversation with the reader? And then, of course, always end with a call to action. So, you know, tell the story, uh, you know, give them all the information they need and then give them a call to action. So book your appointment here or read about this clinical trial here so that um, you're giving them a takeaway with that. Yeah, you're telling them you're you're telling them what the next logical step is. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then, yeah, I think probably the last big one, big thing, if I had to give, um, one other thing is consistency. So, um, using consistency in language so that you're predictable with your content. Um, you want to make sure that the reader trusts you, you know, you're, you're helping that patient or that caregiver understand, um, their options and what they need to take away. So, um, being consistent for them in terms of language and layout and how the document's presented um, creates that trust there. So um, even down to things like using the same acronyms for certain terminology or you know using the same font throughout, things like that, they do matter um, and they do create um, that that trust that that's needed uh, to convey messages clearly. So if you're working on a program, do you almost create like a style guide or something to, ensure that if you've got multiple writers working on something. um, Always. Yes, definitely. Always. um, And, you know, whether that be a general style guide or a completely custom style guide, we always have style guides that go along um, with each and every one of our documents. And that's what our, uh, you know, medical writers use when they're building out their content, um, as well as our QCers. So we'll have the style guide and then a QC checklist to make sure that we're fulfilling all of the requirements in terms of lay language um, and health literacy and numeracy principles. That's awesome. There's so much more to this than uh, maybe one might might gather at first blush. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a huge world and we're always learning. I think that's that's one of the, the big things about working in health literacy is it is humbling. There's just so much that we are still learning and things that we can improve on in, the, in this space. And that's kind of the magic of it is, is just working with patients to get them exactly what they need um, and engaging with them as much as we can throughout this whole process. So um, yeah, it's definitely, it's a, it's a great and very fulfilling space to be in. Yeah. Well, Kelsey, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and your knowledge for sure. Um, how can people get in contact with you? 
Um, yeah, so uh, you can contact uh, myself and TransPerfect at medicalwriting at transperfect.com um, if you have any questions about health literacy, plain language, anything like that. Um, we're happy to, to discuss. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us. And uh, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Clinical Research Coach. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd subscribe and leave a rating and a review. I truly hope that you got something out of this episode that can help us all work towards our goal of making a meaningful difference in the lives of others.